The good is often the enemy of the best. I know in my own heart I can justify any number of sins quite easily. My own laziness or covetousness or idolatry, which as a matter of fact is saying the exact same thing three times. And I do this by pursuing the good instead of the best. Eric Little said, many of us are missing something in life because we are chasing after, we're after what is second best. We excuse our lack of evangelism because we are busy, quote unquote, loving a brother. We excuse our lack of love for a brother because we are, quote unquote, needed at home. We excuse our lack of fathering because we are, quote unquote, serving people. And we can find ourselves in a excuse cycle very quickly and very easily. Our hearts are indeed a factory that is very efficient at making idols of all sorts. Instead of excuses and toys and little pet dreams, we need instead to look at what is truly beautiful. And what is truly beautiful can only be seen with the eyes of faith. And that is why you and I need to pay special attention to see the glory of God that is coming. Tonight we're going to look at a very specific exhortation to do exactly that from a prophet who is declaring God's judgment against an idolatrous nation. You've been able to tell so far we haven't had very much fire and brimstone in Habakkuk. This is as close as he gets to that. So let's read what he says. Habakkuk chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork shall respond. What we see in these two woes is God's judgment. One reality that you will not take long to understand is nobody gets out of this life without scars. Check out your belly button. And this, but this, however, is not what the prophets are trying to get across. When they cry out, woe to him, Their point is to warn those in mortal danger of the wrath of God. I remember one time my dad yelling at a boy in our Boy Scout troop that he was about to walk straight over a rattlesnake. Maybe my dad saved that boy's life. But however bad it would be to get bitten by a rattlesnake in the mountains above Los Angeles, it will be worse, far worse 
infinitely worse to fall out of favor with God. And in tonight's passage, we're talking about infinitely worse than any scar or any snake bite you can imagine. Habakkuk in this passage five times repeats, woe to him who. And in fact, I've combined the first two for this first point. And in these first two, we see a combination of greed and injustice. Now, certainly, the Babylonians took avarice to a far greater extent than any of us could ever dream of in our worst nightmares. But the same seed that destroyed them eternally can do the same today. We are greedy when we value obtaining something more than honesty. We value getting something more than honest relationships. We value what we see in this world more than purity before God. Greed is when you take any desire and you let it have control over your conscience. You let it have control over all your values even more than your relationship with the Lord. And when that happens, injustice naturally, frequently ensues. Now the solution to this kind of greed that come and takes over our soul, this kind of injustice that goes throughout all of our relationships is to look for God until you find his glory in you trusting his promises. The Chaldeans' greed moved them to level cities and burn villages. Your greed, my greed instead, may move us to snub those who are nearest us. It may move us to shirk our duties and to forsake your friend in need. Now, these are minor little sins, right? Until someone snubs us or until someone shirks their duty to us or until someone forsakes us when we are in need. And then we see the enormity of the sin that is before us and in fact, even in our heart. These sins unfortunately, are alive and well even in Grace Baptist Santa Maria. But Habakkuk further warned the Babylonians and their rulers, the Chaldeans, that judgment would come because even inanimate objects would cry out the accusation of their crimes. He says in our last verse here, in verse 11, for the stone will cry out. Now I take this to mean that the Chaldeans cannot possibly hope to escape judgment. Like Abel's blood crying out from the field, all creation will one day testify that God doesn't miss a thing. You cannot, happen, you cannot hide your sin because it happens in some backwater Hicksville like Judah or like Santa Maria, California. You cannot hide your sin because it happens in the darkness of your bedroom or the emptiness of your car. God sees straight into our hearts and that is enough to convict anyone who is unwilling to repent of our sins. 
So how do we avoid this? How do we avoid this woe? How do we arrange our hearts so that we are not susceptible to God's wrath? Well, it's the gospel. It's the good news. And from this passage, the gospel that we see is that we must see the glory of God that is coming. When you see a neighbor you might otherwise snub or a duty that you long to shirk or a friend in need that you are scared to help, embrace the gospel. Embrace the power of the Holy Spirit working in you and through you so that you are therefore trusting God's promises, so that you are seeing the glory of God that is coming. You will understand that he is involved even in these little, tiny, mundane circumstances so that you will indeed love your neighbor, you will do your duty, and you will be a friend to those in need. When you see your neighbor or coworker or family member as one who has their own struggles and their own weaknesses just like you do, then you will more easily trust the God who has created these people in his image, and you will be able to love them like he calls us to. Habakkuk continues in verse 12. He says, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that prophet peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Have you ever thought of this? Every single person has a kingdom. Every single one of us has our own little kingdom. We have an aspect of our lives in which we believe we are sovereign, even over God. Your kingdom might be at work. Your kingdom might be at home. Your might, kingdom might be in securing the, the sovereignty of the remote control. But our kingdom is that over which we believe nobody else can tell us what to do. But the Lord says, this is folly. This is, this is folly because our kingdoms that we build in this way are destined to burn they cannot last. If you are building your kingdom on injustice like the Chaldean rulers of Babylon, then you will find your kingdom labor for fire. You will find your kingdom worrying for nothing. Have you ever found that to be true? You think you're going to get this one thing that you've longed for, and you don't care how you get it, so you're just going to go and go and go and go and go until you do, and then you found out that you went and you went and you went and you went and got nothing for it, except for heartache and pain and frustration. Why? It's because you have not aligned your kingdom with the kingdom of God. Many of the happiest people I've ever met on earthly standards have been frustrated over and over and over again. But their kingdom was aligned with the Lord's and they were the ones who had a kingdom that was founded on a rock that would not move. Only God's 
kingdom can last forever. And I think that's exactly what he's getting at in verse 14 when he says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What we need to understand in this verse is this word glory. In fact, I've mentioned several times, much of what's going on in Habakkuk is about the kingdom of God and aligning ourselves rightly with it. And the most important word right now is this idea of glory. Now, the word that we translate as glory started existence with the idea of weightiness. A person in your village where you live carried weight because this person's opinion mattered. When something came before the village and this person spoke, the discussion was over. And so you kind of had the idea that this person's words carried weight. Maybe you've spoken like that before. One who carried this kind of weight, then to kind of expand the metaphor, radiated. And it wasn't long before this person, the chief of the village, so to speak, wore special dress, or they owned generous living space, or they carried other trappings of power or authority, either because they could afford these things, or because the people wanted to give them these trappings of glory so that they would look the part. They would appear to be important. We do this for people in our own culture. We pay quarterbacks millions of dollars to throw a piece of pigskin. We pay people whose one talent in the world is to memorize lines really quick and deliver them on television or movies. So what do we do? We have our celebrities wear Rolexes and drive Rolls Royces because it makes us feel like the people who we are worshiping really are different and better than us. By the way, I'm not a fan of Italian luxury cars. I like Rolls Royce, so in case, you know, you decide you want to, yeah. I can go German too, but the Lamborghini, Ferrari, forget it. We even call these glorious people idols, don't we? But we are missing something. We pay attention to their vacations. We pay attention to their dress. We pay attention to their philosophical, religious, political dribble, though most of them haven't thought about these issues for two consecutive minutes in their life. Why do we do this? It's because we are worshiping them blindly. Now, in a sense, our worship of the Lord is similar. Stay with me. Don't cut me off yet. Glory communicates the idea with God that his perfections, his beauties are visible. Or actually, more correctly, his glory is that we are able to perceive these perfections and these beauties because we can't, after all, really see God. 
And the Bible then talks about his glory in terms of light. It talks about it in terms of sound. It talks about his glory in terms of heaviness. And the Bible also speaks of his glory being related to his name. And the more widely and the more greatly his name is thought well of, then therefore the greater his glory in the minds and hearts of the people around he has this greater glory, which, by the way, is exactly the reason why we do missions. We do missions in Santa Maria, California, and we do missions in Chad and all of the other nations in the world so that God's name will be glorified. My friends, we are here to make him famous. Here's where the image differs from celebrities. Celebrity is a person who collects other people's 15 minutes of fame. But God's glory is like a mountain that cannot be climbed or a star that cannot be reached. It is far more grand and large than any of our puny little imaginations can hold. We make God look good, not in the sense that we put makeup on him, but in the sense that we take people and point a telescope at God and let them see something that is grand and glorious but they haven't paid attention to. And we see this in God's word by us trusting his promises. They are then able to see the glory of God more and more clearly. And we find some absolutely stunning, striking images of God's glory in Ezekiel and Revelation and Isaiah. And these men see these visions that are so strange that the prophets are trying to pull language and vocabulary out of the sky to describe that which is ineffable. But Habakkuk insists that what cannot be communicated by human language, that that which is ineffable will one day fill the earth as waters cover the seas. And how is that going to happen? How is his glory going to finally cover everything on earth and everyone will be able to finally perceive that which makes God truly glorious? Well, I think that there is a clue on how that will happen by the passage we are seeing. It's his judgment and his mercy. We see here, we cannot escape the idea that God's glory will be expressed in both judgment and in grace. In fact, the Bible explicitly says both of these in Exodus 9.16 but for this purpose, I, Yahweh, have raised you, Pharaoh, up to show you my power, my power in judgment, so that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. People will said for years and centuries later, look what God did to Pharaoh. And that was his, God's glory. But then we also see that grace and mercy is God's glory. In Psalm 106, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he, the Lord, saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. God could have just wiped them out, right? They deserve to be wiped out, right? 
But instead, it was God's mercy not giving them what they deserved that spread his glory. Furthermore, the judgment that comes upon the nations is the active working in history of God making clear that he is not to be trifled with. We have a habit of pushing God away, of making him unimportant in our decisions. And God is going to make it clear one day that that was not, that did not work. God is not someone to be trifled with. His judgment combines wrath and mercy even to our own day. Glory in this sense is God acting to vindicate his own work and that of those who call themselves his people. Because those who snub God will be one day eternally snubbed. So we ask ourselves a question, do I want to build my own little kingdom, my own little glory case that will at best burn and at worst appear like vomit and dung? Or do I want my labor to go towards something that is eternal and glorious? If the latter, then right now you and I must choose to see the glory of God that is coming. So go to his word and find what God values. And then go to his world and find where God is moving. Only by listening to the Spirit can you align your own petty little kingdom with his great kingdom that cannot be shaken and cannot end. And that is what Habakkuk is telling us. Now, unfortunately, we are not yet finished looking at our own hearts through the eyes of the Chaldeans. In verse 15, Habakkuk writes, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. This woe here clearly anticipates Paul's warning against living for the flesh as opposed to living for the Holy Spirit. He says in Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Now, we have to understand what Habakkuk is talking about here and what specifically Paul is condemning in Galatians. If we are living merely to satisfy the appetites of the flesh, we are living for death. Now, does that make it wrong to enjoy your food? Does that make it wrong to enjoy drink or to enjoy fellowship or to go and see beautiful sights? No, of course not. There's a difference between enjoying our senses and living for sensuality. If we are living merely to satisfy our appetites, however, we are living to die. 
The only thing that can satisfy can't be eaten with our eyes, nose, fingers, ears, or mouth. It can only be consumed by our heart. Our flesh will not last. Just ask anybody in this room who's been to the doctor in the last month or two. Right? And... In a very poetic and clear warning, Habakkuk says, the cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. What is he talking about here? Well, he's using the illustration of getting drunk. And clearly that's the first thing that comes to mind. But the point that Habakkuk is getting at here is don't take glory in what is shameful. Don't pretend that what distracts from your character and your standing with God is something that makes you better or weightier than others around you. This could be concerning alcohol. It could be concerning some sort of drug. It could be concerning any kind of sin. It just so happens that the sin that our culture is most dealing with right now is the sexual sin. Why? Because it's the cheapest and easiest high to get. And if all you are doing is living for pleasure, then it's a lot harder and it's not quite socially acceptable to go get a bunch of heroin and shoot that up so you'll just find somebody to sleep with. It really is that simple, folks. But Satan doesn't have to be creative to trip us up. He's been doing this for centuries, for millennia, so it's easy for him to catch us. And when Isaiah says in 5.22, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men at make, mixing strong drink. Again, he's talking about alcohol. But he's talking about everything that you and I do to prop ourselves up by living merely for the sensual aspect of our lives. Do you know what this includes? This includes the good people who most enjoy sipping glasses of wine while they look at billion-dollar pieces of art in museum, who enjoy sipping wine while they're watching classical music concerts, or even if they don't want the wine, but they think themselves better because they like high culture as opposed to low culture. No, it's still, if it's living for your senses, then it is still a banquet of death. The whole point here is that you not glory in any act of the flesh, your beautiful pink dolphin collection, your world travel, or even your stockpile of Sunday school class experience. These all very well can be and often are these little idols that we have correct, created to distract us from what really matters. Instead, boasting, which is the word we use for taking glory in something, is acceptable for one thing and one thing only. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these things I delight 
declares the Lord. This is where true godliness lies. This is where real glory comes to us. Again, Eric Little says, you will know as much of God and only as much of God as you are willing to put into practice. You want to claim, you want to boast in the fact that you understand God's steadfast love, his justice, and his righteousness in the earth? Then your life and mine needs to be characterized, again, by God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. It needs to be characterized by steadfast love that we heard defined again this morning. It needs to be characterized by justice. It needs to be characterized by righteousness. Your collection and mine of God stuff is only as good as it is shared with those who don't have any. In this case, it truly is better to give than to receive. Make your true glory glorious by equipping and enabling others to do it too. And that is how you will see the glory of God that is coming. So now I've kind of alluded to this. But Habakkuk has been kind of circling around his main point until he gets to this last section. And he gets right to the heart of the matter. And this gets to the heart of my own sin. What is it that I congratulate myself on? What is it the thing that I think the most about? What is it that I cling to? Whatever that is for you, that is very most likely your idol which is exactly what he talks about here in verses 18 through 20. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! And to a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overladen with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. All these sins that we've talked about, greed and injustice, building one's own kingdom and sensuality, these are all forms of idolatry. Now your idolatry may look different than mine. But essentially, our idols are those things that we glory in, those things that we boast about, those things that we hold tight to us. And when someone who is mature in Christ comes to us and they start poking at it, we back up and we say, no. John Piper makes this concept crystal clear for us. He says, we make a God out of whatever we find most joy in. Therefore, find your greatest joy in God and be done with idolatry. Train your heart to be done with idolatry. And here's how Habakkuk concludes. He says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, the Hebrew word for temple is the same word for palace. So the context alone determines which one is meant. God in his temple is meant to be worshipped. God in his palace is meant to be obeyed. Which, conveniently enough, is to say the same thing. You worship by obeying the Lord and you obey the Lord by worshipping 
him. And both of these elicit from us the same response. Silence. I love my collections of stuff. I've got a lot of stuff at my house. I can talk about them all day long. I can, on the internet, research endlessly to discover the fine distinctions between this tool and that and why this one is better for this job than that one for another job. And what is needed from all of us is to just keep our big fat trap shut. Be quiet. Stop thinking about yourself and your little toys and collections and little pink dolphins on your countertop. But instead, to recognize that God is in his temple. To recognize and see that the glory of God is coming. It's a really good example of a man who did exactly this. In the 1924 Olympics, he saw the glory of God and thought more of it than his own glory. Favored to win the 100-meter race, Eric Little chose not to run in the qualifying heat on a Sunday afternoon because that was his Sabbath. Now, whatever you think of his justification for not running that day, clearly Little thought more about what God's glory was than his own. Little also understood that his talents, his treasures, and his time should be invested in God's kingdom for God's glory. And when rebuked by his sister for wasting time running, Eric Little famously responded, I believe God made me for a purpose. China. You see, he was born in China to missionary parents there. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Not to run would be to hold him in contempt. Little's father, the missionary in China, told Eric that what the world needed was muscular Christians. Christians who were able to compete or not, because it was a Sabbath, for God's glory and not their own. I dare say If Eric Little's father were with us today, he would say we need the same thing. People who are willing to use their time, their talent, and their treasures to expand God's glory instead of our own. And just as if Little himself read this passage, listen to what he said about keeping silent. I'm I'm interpreting here, but I think it gets his point. He said after the Olympics, it's been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I've been a young lad, I've had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than any I have run in Paris. And this race ends when God gives out the medals. Did he enjoy getting a gold medal from the person in Paris? Oh, I'm, I'm sure he did. By the way, you can see an actual video of him running. It is, it is really cool. Google that. You'll, you'll enjoy it. And so, since we are 
not running for an Olympic medal. We are running for God's medal. We need to fight the good fight. We need to finish the race, and we need to keep the faith. And we do this only when we see that the real glory, the glory that is coming is from God and not anything that we can say or do. Let us pray. Lord Almighty, I pray that you would indeed put it upon our hearts to trust the promises of God so that we will see indeed you coming and showering us that grace upon grace, that mercy upon mercy, so that we will be the men and women of God you have created us to be. And Lord, you will teach us to keep quiet when it comes to all the things that we seek to fill our heart and our time with. Help us instead to glorify you. It's for your glory, for our joy, and for the growth of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.